So if you've got your Bibles, open them to Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel, Exodus, <laughs> uh, chapter 33. And just going to quickly revise what we did last week for about five minutes and then go and finish the chapter. Father, I just thank you that you've given us this opportunity to go through your word. Thank you for the, the types and pictures of Christ that we find here, which, which help us to understand uh, more of um, what you've done for us and, and more of the New Testament truths about um, being baptized or identified with you, about being about atonement and, and about where we find salvation and things like that. So just yeah, thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Let's start in verse 18 of chapter 33 of Exodus. And this is um, Moses saying, Please, show me your glory. And then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So last week we looked back into Exodus chapter 17 and saw that Jesus Christ is the rock that was split or struck or cleft by Moses with the rod, so and the waters poured out, and representing the Holy Spirit. And now, again, we see this split rock representing Christ, the cross. So in verse 21, it says, Here is a place by me. Or the whole thing about this is that it's a picture of how sinful man can stand in God's goodness or glory. Because we can't see God's face and live. We can't be in his glory unprotected and live because we are sinful we have a sinful nature so verse 21 here is a place by me it's there's a physical location in in this type and that points to there being a specific person where we can find salvation and that is in jesus acts 4 12 secondly and you shall stand on the rock that rock is christ or that rock is god so we need to put our faith in christ moses was told to stand there on that particular rock, and that's um, Acts sixteen thirty one. And then there's so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you into the cleft of the rock, and so that's our identification with Christ. We are put into Christ. We are part of His family, in a place of refuge and safety. And there's Romans ten seventeen and Galatians three twenty six twenty seven, which you read last week. Then atonement, I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. So we're covered. And so Christ is our atonement. He is our covering. So God protects us from judgment. Jesus died in our place and bore the wrath of God for our sin. And this is represented also by the mercy seat. And then we've got these resurrection blessings. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So once the judgment has passed, Moses could receive, the, in a, in a, so to speak, the tidal wave of goodness that followed in his path. So the glory after judgment, that's what we're exposed to. And, uh, yeah, so that was the um, the... the that section. Then we also saw that the breaking of the first set of tablets represents the broken law. We are, the Ten Commandments. We are all guilty before God. 
that's what the, the law tells us before we come to Christ. But when we come to Christ, we have the second set of stone tablets, which represent the new covenant. And the law is now written on our hearts. And the scripture we read last week is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So this means that we are a new creation in Christ, recreated in his image of righteousness and holiness. And I've got a verse... Ephesians 4.24, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So overall, the big picture, remember that chapters 33 and 34 are about the presence of God going with them. And straight after the promise that his presence, his power and his love would go among them, and also following the beautiful picture or type that we just looked at, how his presence could go among a people who are so prone to do evil, God now gives us some instructions which will help us to remain or continue in his presence. Now, if you go ahead and read the rest of the story of the children of Israel, you'll find that they did not obey these instructions and they did not remain in God's presence, which is very sad. So we can learn from them. We can learn. It's wisdom to learn from other people's mistakes. It's the easiest way to learn from mistakes is when they're not your own. (laughs) So let's learn from their mistakes. So, verse 11 in chapter 34, bit of an introduction, so we know why God is giving us these commands. After proclaiming his, it says, um, observe what I command you this day. So after all these promises, these, these glorious things, God says, observe what I command you this day. So after proclaiming his glory, his nature, God will highlight certain aspects of the law so that his goodness and grace will be experienced by the people. Now, think about this. The sun is 149.6 million kilometers away from the earth. It's huge. Awesome in power. And yet, if we go outside and put our hand in front of our eyes, we can't see the sun. Now, the sun hasn't gone. It's still there. But my flesh just gets in the way. So too, the degree to which we allow our flesh to come between us and the sun, S-O-N, is the degree that which we'll walk in darkness or not walk in the light. And because God doesn't want this for his children, he reminds Moses to deal decisively with those things which would cloud or block the people's perception of his nature, of who he is. So, all things are lawful for me, Paul declared, Now, as children of God, we are the freest people in the whole world, as Christians. Yeah, because all things are lawful for me, Paul declared. So it doesn't include illegal or immoral activities, but we can eat what we want, we can worship when we want, we can go where we want, we can work where we want, we can play sport as we want, we have as much money as we want, we can watch TV as as much as we want, use Facebook as much as we want, surf the web, etc. Yet Paul went on to say that even though all things are lawful, not all things are expedient, profitable, or wise. That's 1 Corinthians 6.12. So in this regard, the remainder of chapter 34, I believe, is given to Moses in order that people would be wise, that they might experience all of what God wanted for them. So continue in verse 11. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, watch out, 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So, think of, like, you you make an attachment to something, you can kind of tie yourself to something, you attach yourself to something. When you make a covenant with something, like these people here, when they're, when they get involved in things they shouldn't be getting involved in, then they're making an attachment to these things. It's like they're putting their hand over their face and they can't see the sun, S-O-N. So be careful you don't get sucked into the images of the world, the idols of the world, or get attached to any of their idols, God warns. God is jealous for us, not of us. It's not like they're going to have more fun if they do those things. So I better stop them from having fun. No, it's not the way it is. He wants the best for us. And like a, a parent, you know, you want the best for your kids. You'll stop them from doing things that harm them. And I heard an um, analogy the other day. A kid's holding a stick of dynamite and it's sparkling, you know, and and the parent's saying, throw it away, throw it away. And the kid goes, why? It's, it's pretty. <laughs> yeah, but it's going to destroy you. So... These people won't enjoy what they're doing uh, as far as making these covenants with other people and the, the other things they can do, but it's not good for them. And so God is saying that the altars, the images, and the worship in the shady groves under the trees, like they used to do in their pagan worship, will destroy their lives and our lives by destroying our vision of him. So this is why purity equals power in the Christian life. So a purity equals power or a greater experience and awareness of God's presence in our lives. So one of my favorite psalms or verses in Psalms, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Psalm 24, 3-6. So verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. So the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember back, that was made of beaten gold. They used a hammer to make that. Whereas the gods of the Canaanites were made of molten gold. So molten gold is melted and poured into a mold which is exactly what we see in the meltdown of spirituality where people mold God into what they think he should be in order to excuse their own sin. They make God into their own image. It's called idolatry. But God chose to represent himself through beaten gold. So why do I serve the true and living God? Why am I committed to Jesus Christ? Because he was beaten for me and nailed to the cross of Calvary. We can't mold him into our image. Verse 18, the feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. 
in the appointed time of the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. So this uh, reminds us of communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. Remember and celebrate what I did for you when I delivered you from Egypt. And in Luke twenty two nineteen, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, verse 19, all that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. So they're an agrarian people, and the cattle represented their livestock. So the proof of one's dedication is seen in what he does with his livelihood. Yet giving to God materially is not only the proof of dedication, but the path to dedication. Why? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Therefore, giving God the first of our livelihood of our cattle steers our hearts towards heaven. Verse 20, this bit's interesting. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. So, the donkey could only be redeemed by the death of a lamb. So if the lamb speaks of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, so guess what that makes us? <laughs> the donkey. Okay, An unredeemed donkey would die, and so an unredeemed person goes to hell. And <laughs> I've always thought of myself as a spiritual donkey, slow and stubborn when it comes to obeying God. So, <clears throat> Verse 20 again, All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So what a delight it is to see people come to church, not empty-handed, but looking for opportunities to give to the Lord and to encourage their brothers and sisters. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So we need to remember to take time out to be revived, refocused, um, restored in our walk with the Lord. Refreshed, renewed. And... I was thinking about this, and it's not time to focus on the family, but to focus the family on the Lord. And I've heard a lot of people say, "Oh, we need family time," but uh, you know, and that's a lot uh, a reason that people give for not coming to church. But we need to be careful that we don't elevate family above God, because then you have made it an idol. You're worshiping your family. So remember, it's not time to focus on the family, but to focus the family on the Lord. So, verse 22 And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. So, three times a year all the people, all the men at least, had to come to the temple or to the tabernacle. So, you had the feast of Passover in the spring the Feast of Pentecost 50 days later, and the Feast of Ingathering or Tabernacles in the fall, the three harvests. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So think about this. This is a fantastic promise of protection. All the men have disappeared all into one place in the country and they're all worshipping. They're all you know, offering sacrifices and singing and doing their thing, building a, a booth or whatever in the tab- Feast of Tabernacles. And the rest of the country is deserted. There's just a few women and children around. It'll be a prime time for the enemy to come and attack. 
But what does God promise? Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So God is saying, I will protect you. Now, for us, we might say, I can't afford to get away. If I take time off, my competitors will eat me alive. My bank account will dwindle. Our family will suffer. And that's what the children of Israel could have said as well. I mean, they had to travel, some of these guys, a long way. It would have taken a long time. It means they're away from the land. It means they're not making as much money and make themselves vulnerable. But God, however, says, if you obey me, I will cast out the nations. I will enlarge your borders. I will be your protection. So if you're trying to defend, guide, or provide for your family yourself, then watch out. God may say, if you want to do that, you're on your own. Good luck. (laughs) I would much rather have the Lord take care of my family. So, verse 25, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. Leaven is a picture of sin, and the offering was a picture of a perfect Savior, so it could not be offered with the sacrifice. Now, verse 26, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. So this is interesting. The first fruits were not to be distributed by the children of Israel to whoever they thought were worthy or needy, but were to be brought to the house of the Lord. The same is true today. We are to bring the first fruits, the tithe, into the house of the Lord, into the place we're being spiritually fed, to be distributed as the Lord sees fit. That way we have no control over it and receive no credit for it, which is how it should be. If you look at um, Matthew 6, 3-4, but when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. So if you want to give money to those people or ministries you think are needy or worthy, that's good. But do with your money, not God's. For the Bible says the tithe belongs to Him. And you see that in uh, Malachi chapter 3, 8-12. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, there's a false doctrine that comes from those verses, and that says you give to get rich, but that's not true. So, God will bless us if we give, but it could be emotionally, it could be with friends, spiritually, and sometimes it could be financially. There's stories of where, like Mr. Colgate, he just kept on giving and giving, and God kept giving more and more. So how does this work in practice? Well, a couple of oh, a long time ago, I wanted to give some music stands, some mic stands to the church I was going to. And they wouldn't accept them as a gift. They said, we'll, we'll buy them off you. And I thought, oh, okay. And I didn't understand this principle. So I said, okay, well, fine, you buy them off me. I'll put the money in the offering. And they said, look, what you do with the money is your business, but we're, gonna buy, we're happy to buy the mic stands off you. 
So I sold them my extenders and I did put their money into the offering. But because of that, I couldn't say I gave those things to the church. I can't say that oh, those are my extenders that I gave the church. I just put some money in the offering and the church bought the my extenders with that money. And um, another story a pastor told me, it was last year I think, uh, the church needed new carpet, desperately needed new carpet. They had their own building. And some guy in the church says, oh, I can do the carpet for you. And, you know, I'll pay for it and I'll lay it. And he had his own carpet business. And so he did. But the pastor said if they had just given it regularly, the church could have afforded to buy the carpet itself. Because now this person can say, well, I bought and laid the carpet for this church. And he's received his reward. So when the church buys something for someone or spends money for ministry, then it's anonymous and no one person can take credit for it. And we also see this principle observed in the New Testament. Acts 4, 34-35 Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the money and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they, meaning the apostles, distributed to each as anyone had need. So no one person could say, oh, Hey, widows, you know, that's my money from when I sold my field that's buying that food for you. But you, you can't do that because you gave the money to the apostles, in that case the church at the time, and they distributed it as they saw fit. So you had nothing to do with how that money was spent or used. So finally, if you don't want to give, then please don't because God loves a cheerful giver. Giving out of obligation is an insult to God. He gave his life freely and willingly for me and you. So give freely and willingly to him. So in the context of giving, Paul says in Second Corinthians 9.12, Now thanks be to God for his gift, precious beyond telling his indescribable, inexpressible free gift. It's talking about the gift of Jesus coming for us, dying on the cross. So, this is a personal thing, but if you or I don't think God is worthy to receive our first fruits, then we have a problem that we need to sort out with God. Always keep in mind that God wants us to give it for our sakes, not His. God doesn't need our money, but He does want our hearts. Remember that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a truth that our hearts follow what we put our money towards. And I was just reading in my quite time now these verses mark 12 41 to 44 and he sat down opposite the treasury and saw how the crowd was casting money into the treasury many rich people were throwing in large sums and a widow who was poverty stricken came and put in two copper mites the smallest of coins which together make half of a cent and he called his disciples to him and said to them truly and surely i tell you this widow she who is poverty-stricken has put in more than all those contributing to the treasury. For they all threw in out of their abundance, but she, out of her deep poverty, has put in everything that she had, even all which she had on which to live. So I just wanted to point out that it's not the amount that we give, it's the heart. The widow was trusting that God would supply all her needs, 
she was practicing dependency on God. And therefore, especially considering the context where we're looking for God's presence to be in our lives, she was experiencing the presence and power of God in her life. So you may not have much to give. That's okay. Jesus sees your heart. Jesus gave to us sacrificially, and he desires us to experience the joy of sacrificial giving. Remember, for the joy that set before him, he endured the cross. Remember that God is always faithful to meet your needs. So, going back to the idols, we need to sever or break any attachments we have to the things of this world, even the things which are not illegal or immoral. And uh, one of those things is wealth, but it could be anything. If you can go to Matthew six twenty four to 25, it says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will stand by and be devoted to the one and despise and be against the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, deceitful riches, money, possessions, or whatever is trusted in. Therefore I tell you, stop being perpetually uneasy, anxious, and worried about your life. You know, the Bible says that perfect love drives out all fear in First John. So if you're anxious, worried, or fearful, then it means you're not abiding in the love of God. There is something blocking your view of God, or you are attached to some other idol. Now, I've experienced that. I still do sometimes. So the fact is that this life is all about our sanctification. So this simply means that we are growing or are being transformed bit by bit by the Holy Spirit into the image of God. And as we go on in our life, as we grow closer to the Lord, learn to love Him more, our view of God becomes clearer and we experience more of His presence in our lives. We, we have more of an awareness of His presence. So this life is all about learning to cut away any attachments to worldly things, to remove anything which blocks our view of the Savior and therefore causes us to worry, fear, stress, and be anxious. And as we do this, we abide in His presence and love to a greater extent. And this is what Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus. So Ephesians three fourteen to 19 it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know, which means to experience, the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So when Paul says to know, he's not talking about in an intellectual sense, he's talking about practically to know that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer for us. That's what the presence of God is all about. So money is just another idol, but yes, it is a powerful one. Um, Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Jesus asked him to repent of his idolatry by selling all his goods and then come, follow me. But the young man was too attached to his money, his wealth, his lifestyle, and he went away sad. So his wealth was blocking his view of the son, S-O-N. And it is a tragedy 
when the things which we think bring us pleasure, meaning, satisfaction, purpose and identity are actually a cage or prison cell of our own making. So, another thing I was reading in my quiet time which stuck out to me, I'm just sharing this now, is um, when Jesus called the disciples, uh, Peter, James and John in Luke 5, he had just used one of their boats to preach to the people who were on the shore and Jesus was back a bit on the water so he could be heard by this vast multitude of people. And when Jesus finished talking, he told Peter to cast in his net. And they caught so many fish that John's boat came over to help, and both boats almost sank because of the vast quantity of fish. It would have been a sight to see. But Jesus finishes with this. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all, left behind all, and this is my words, cut away any attachments, and followed him. So that's from the Amplified Bible, and the, the left behind is um, there, but I've put in the cut away any attachments, because that's, that's the way I think about it. We, we attach ourselves to things, and, and we, we're not so attached to the Lord. So God wants to do a wonderful thing in each of us today as his presence, power, and love abide with us. But there are things we must observe to maintain our attachment to God, our vision of God, to experience to the fullest extent his presence in our lives. We must continually be severing any attachments to the world because any attachment to the world will dim the light, love, power and presence of God in my life. Obeying God's commands will keep us from forming attachments to the world and keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who said in John fifteen nine to 14 I have loved you as the Father has loved me. Abide in my love. Continue in his love with me. If you keep my commandments, if you continue to obey my instructions, you will abide in my love and live on in it, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and live on in his love. I have told you these things that my joy and delight may be in you and that your joy and your gladness may be of full measure and complete and overflowing. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. No one has greater love, no one has shown stronger affection than to lay down, give up his own life for his friends. You are my friends if you keep on doing the things which I command you to do. So why is God or Jesus here saying, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love? Why is he wanting us to keep his commandments? So we can experience his joy and his delight. We can have the full measure of his joy in our hearts. So as John, it says in First John, his commands are not burdensome. They're a blessing. And so we come back to Exodus 34. Verses 10 and 11, I've got it on the screen. This is the Old Testament version of what we just read in the New Testament in John. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among you, and all the people among whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So God is saying, I want to bless you. I want to do an awesome thing with you. Observe what I command you this day. Okay, let's go on to verse 26. 
You should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's kind of strange. And uh, Orthodox Jews, to keep the letter of this law, they have separate plates, utensils, and cookware for meat and dairy products. So the, the two things don't come in contact with each other. But I think the main point here is that there was a, a Canaanite fertility practice, which is a pagan thing, and that involved boiling a young goat in its mother's milk and for fertility, and God is saying don't have anything to do with that fertility practice, that pagan ritual. Uh, verse 27 and 28, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So because Moses had seen something of the glory of God, he was to remind the people that in order to keep an understanding of his glory fresh, they were to keep his commands, commandments that would define his nature, commandments which would point to and be fulfilled in his son. Now, this, these next verses talk about Moses when he comes down. He's um, got this glow on his face. Now, so it was, starting in verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. So what, what we've just been through. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So, if he just had only this account, we would think that Moses covered his face in order that the people might not be blown away with this bright face, like scared. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us a real reason. It says, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 12 and 13, Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face, so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade away. Moses put a veil over his face because he didn't want the people to see that the glow was decreasing or going away. Now, from a picture or type point of view, the law has glory, but the glory is fading. The glory has faded. But the glory of the new covenant is eternal. It will never fade. Now, this also has application to us personally as we can be inclined to do the same thing. We can put a veil over ourselves. As mature Christians, we don't want people to see that we're not shining as brightly as we once did or think we should. So we put a veil on ourselves. We learn the lingo. We learn how to appear pious. We learn how to cover up. 
and we become exhausted as our lives become fake, phony, they become facades. But when we realize we don't have to pretend to be spiritual giants, prayer warriors, or heroes of faith, when we are free to be the dim bulbs we know we are, suddenly the burden lifts and our Christian experience becomes vibrant and alive once more as we simply reflect His light, His beauty, His grace and goodness and glory. It's not about who we pretend to be, but about Jesus and His reality. So look at Him, point others to Him, and you'll do well. Now, just want to take a closer look at verse 29 to 35. Going without food for 40 days does not usually help your appearance, especially if you're 80 years old. But with Moses, this is not true. This is when he came down from being in the God's presence on Mount Sinai, he was glowing. Now, reflecting the glory he had experienced on the mountain, Moses didn't actually know that his face was glowing. And I believe this is the way it is with us too. When we spend time in the presence of the Lord, when, we, when we're at his feet, when we take the time to pray, when we worship him and spend time in the word, our gloom is replaced by a glow. But we might say, I don't feel like a glow. But Moses didn't know he was glowing either. And think about the upper room. This is another way of looking at it. When the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 disciples in the upper room, a flame burned above each one of their heads. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 3. Or something like a flame. This means that if you were one of the 120, you would look around and see 119 other people ignited or on fire or illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you would not see the flame on top of your own head. And that's our tendency to think that everyone else is a flame. Actually, it's that's how God keeps us humble. He doesn't allow us to see the flame now why did God give Moses this glow and why do we need to have this glow well the children of Israel needed to hear the commands the exhortations and the instructions of the Lord but you know how kids are they're not always receptive to commandments instructions or exhortations by nature in our, our sinful nature we're quite rebellious Yet when Moses came down from the mountain and talked to the children of Israel, what could they say? After all, his face was glowing. So, mum and dad, <laughs> whoever you are, if your kids aren't being very, very receptive to your instructions, it might be because there's a glare instead of a glow on your face. Moses glowed, and it made the word he shared acceptable, the things he said palatable. So why did my, Moses gl- glow? Well, he was in the presence of the Lord, and he was simply reflecting the glory of the Lord. In other words, just by hanging out with the Lord, Moses' face glowed. So for us, spending time in the presence of the Lord will impact us in a very real and special way. But here's the problem. Moses' glow began to diminish, and that can happen to us too. We can get attached to different things. We can lose our fervency. We can start to... Our first love can start to, to, to flicker out. What do we need to do? Well, spend more time with the Lord. Begin to glow once again. We need to realize that we need to be renewed and recharged constantly. We can do well for a while, but our glow can turn to a glare. And we can find ourselves dull. But then return to the presence of the Lord and get recharged, refueled, and constantly 
uh, constantly and consistently through prayer, worship, and through the Word. Now, sometimes, instead of going to God to be restored and, and renewed, sometimes we can go to, to other people. Now, there's a story in Luke, chapter 8, 43 to 44. It says, Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. This woman had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, going from doctor to doctor, spending everything she had to stop the blood from seeping from her body. Now, according to the rabbis, her condition was a result of immorality. So, she would be ostracized or separated from her community, divorced from her husband, treated as a leper, unclean, or a sinner. Now, for 12 years, she had this issue bothering her, draining her. So sometimes we can have an issue which we struggle with over a long period of time as well, causing us pain, an issue which constantly nags us, um, is gnawing at us, a past hurt, a, a, a betrayal or an addiction that we can't seem to shake. You go to this person or that group to try and get help with this issue, but the more you try and get help, the more people pull away, feeling overwhelmed by your pain, your problem, your issue. Relationships are spent, friendships are spent, emotions are spent because of the ever-present issue that drains you. And that's what life was like for this woman in Luke 8. And then her life changed. After 12 years of trying to get help from people, she finally heard about someone who could deal with the issue of her situation. She heard about Jesus. And hearing that he was able to do what no man ever could or would do, she touched the border of his garment and immediately her issue was gone. So the garment, or the, the edge of the garment had little strings hanging down and tied in certain knots that would identify lineage, family, vocation, heritage. And um, that's why when David cut off the hem of Saul's robe in First Samuel 24, David was actually cutting off the symbol of his authority and that's why Dave repented of that. So therefore, in touching the hem of Jesus' garment, the woman in Luke 8 was actually submitting to his authority over her condition, her pain and her sadness. So if you have an issue about the way you were brought up, about your ex-wife, former boss, high school teacher, which causes your blood to boil, you can be set free by touching the hem, so to speak, of Jesus' garment, by saying, Lord, you are in authority, you are on the throne, you always have been and always will be, Therefore, nothing could have happened to me or have come my way unless you allowed it. Therefore, I'd submit to your sovereignty. I'm not going to bleed on other people any longer. I won't keep thinking about or dwell on the issue of my lousy marriage, my deprived childhood, my physical condition, my financial setbacks another day. I'm just going to submit it to you as I touch the hem of your garment. So when we do that, we'll have a glow on our face and in our hearts. Will experience a newfound wholeness, healthiness, and beauty by spending time with Jesus. So you don't have to keep on bleeding. Instead, go to the one who shed his blood for you. So I remember when I was younger, I used to have this issue, and I used to didn't bleed on people so much, but I tried to do it myself. And when I did go to people, I'd you know share, and, and it didn't help because I wasn't going to the Lord. So we need to 
if we're going to have a glow, if we're going to be set free, we need to spend time with the Lord. We need to submit to God's authority. We need to say, okay, God, you're in control. So, Father, I thank you for what you've shown us today. Lord, I thank you, Father, that um, we can have a glow on our hearts or in our, in our faces, Lord, because of spending time with you. We can reflect your love and your presence to other people. We can bring glory to you. Father, help us to remember what we've read today. Help us to put into practice. And I pray that you'll be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.